Chinese have a story about a man who robs a jewelry store in broad daylight. The jewelry store specialized in gold coins. And the man goes into the jewelry store and in broad daylight, he snatches a bag of gold. And he gets arrested and the detective said, I got two questions for you. He said, number one, he said, why, why, did, you, why did you do this in broad daylight? And number two, he said, why did you steal this gold with all these people watching you? And the thief said, I didn't see the people. I only saw the gold. It was a blind spot. And this craving for material possessions is what I want to talk about today. Now, we don't have material possession problems in our country, do we? We don't have this in our culture. So I, I think it's a blind spot for many of us. And I created a test that we're going to take in just a few minutes. And there's 13 components to this test. And I created the test. And after I took my own test, I realized I have several blind spots in this own area. And Danita's got even more. I just haven't told her that yet. <laughs> so we're going to take a test in just a couple minutes. But before we get to there, I just want to review a little bit what a blind spot is and why we have blind spots. First of all, you're not born with a blind spot. A blind spot is developed. And these blind spots are developed because of pain in your life. Somebody of significance has hurt you. It's not somebody that, that can't hurt you. It's somebody who can hurt you. Maybe a parent, maybe a grandparent. Maybe a teacher, maybe a coach, maybe a coworker, maybe a boss. But somebody in your life has hurt you, and you then begin to insulate and isolate. You begin to insulate yourself from the pain, and you begin to isolate yourself from those circumstances. And the problem with blind spots then is because we have them, we get stuck in life. And so you, can you have a blind spot in your faith? Well, yes. Can you have a blind spot with God? You, you certainly can. I'll never forget when we started going to church. I was about 14 years old. And this young lady and her brother and her mother were coming to church. And so I asked the young lady, where's your dad? And she said, my dad doesn't come to church. I said, well, why not? She said, well, my dad is mad at God because his mother died several years ago. And he's blaming God. And so is it possible to have blind spots with God? Absolutely. Is it possible to have blind spots in our marriage? Is it possible to have blind spots in how we have interpersonal relationships with other people? Is it possible to have a blind spot with our work? And see, what happens then in life is you can't see yourself, right? I mean, if it wasn't a blind spot, you, you wouldn't be blind to it. But because it's a blind spot, you can't you can't see yourself. And so we begin to pick up these different mannerisms. And so this is why some of you talk too much. And this is why some of you don't talk enough. This is why some of you are too aggressive with conflict. It's why some of you are too passive with conflict. So can you have a blind spot with your health? Absolutely. Can you have a blind spot when it comes to, you know, just about every dimension of your life? The answer is yes. Now, here's the tall order of this message series. What I'm asking you to do is to somehow see yourself. And you're going, well, Kurt, if I could see myself, it wouldn't be a... 
but I can't see myself. And so unless you're praying and asking the Holy Spirit to kind of work in this deal, this is going to be a tall, long series for you, okay? So we begin to ask ourselves, Lord, do I have a blind spot? Lord, what, what does my spouse keep telling me? Lord, my parents keep saying the same thing. You know, my employer, my best friend, my coworker, what are some of these ding, 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 dings that are going off that people are saying about me, and am I going to listen? Now, today, uh, our main character uh, is named Achan. And if you want to turn um, to the seventh chapter Uh, of uh, Joshua. It's a great story. In Joshua chapter 7, this guy Achan has a real problem with um, a lust for materialism. And in this story, it it doesn't go well for Achan. And it doesn't go well for Achan's family. And it doesn't go well for Achan's nation. And so as you're turning there, let me just give you the context. Moses is dead Joshua's the new leader. They cross over the Jordan, and God's going to give them the land from here to here and from here to here. God's promise, I'm going to give you land here to here, here to here, but you've got to go in and take the land. And the very first piece of land that had to be taken was the city of Jericho. Now, the city of Jericho is well fortified, and this is like all the special forces of all the units are right there in Jericho. And the Israelites were told to march around the thing a whole bunch of times, blow some trumpets, and you know what happens. The walls came tumbling down. Well, the very next battle is this little bitty town called Ai. And this little bitty city of Ai is like fighting the cheerleaders. Well, we already destroyed the special forces. Now we're going to take on the cheerleaders. This ought to be pretty easy. And they get just beat up and beat like a drum. So here's our story in Joshua chapter 7. Let's look at verse 1. But the Israelites were unfaithful in regard to the devoted things. So in other words, now what happens is the Israelites were supposed to put back into the temple treasury a whole bunch of these items, but this guy named Achan, he steals some of them. But Achan, the son of, and who cares, Carmi, Zimri, Zerai, tribe of Judah, he took some of them. So the Lord's anger burned against them. Verse 2, now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, about 15 miles away from Jericho. It's only 15 miles, which is near Beth-Avon, the east of Bethel. And he told them, go up and spy out the land. And so the men, they went up and they spied out Ai. When they returned to Joshua, they said, not all the army will have to go up against Ai. Send two or 3,000 men to take it and do not weary the whole army for only a few people live there. So about 3,000 went up. But they were routed by the men of Ai, who killed about 36 of them. They chased the Israelites from the city gate as far as the stone quarries and struck down on the slopes. At this, the hearts of the people melted in fear, and they became like water. It's like, oh my gosh, what are we going to do? You know, we just crossed the Jordan, and we're supposed to take the land, and we take out Jericho, and we can't even take Ai? These are like the powder puff chicks. I mean, we can't even destroy them. We are in real trouble. And then Joshua, he has this meltdown. And he says to God, God, you know, what what are we going to do? It's kind of a pity party. He's pouting. What are we going to do? How are we going to go forward? Your name's going to be discredited. I don't know what to do. And God basically tells Joshua, get up. 
just, just, will, you, will you just get up? And then, and then about verse, let's look at the next section, verse 16. Joshua 7, verse 16, it says, Early the next morning, Joshua and Israel come forward tri- by tribes. Now, what's going to happen is there's sin in the camp. Some guy named Achan and his whole family took a whole bunch of stuff that they weren't supposed to, and they hid it underneath their tent. And so what's going to happen is they're going to now come forward in front of Joshua, tribe by tribe, clan by clan, family by family, and they're going to be revealed, the thief is going to be revealed, and it's not going to be pretty. So early the next morning, Joshua had Israel come forward, tribes by tribes, and and Judah was chosen. So now all the people of the tribe of Judah. So there's sin in the camp with the tribe of Judah. Look at the next verse. Now the clans. So now the clans of Judah come forward, and the Zerites were chosen. He had the clan of the Zerites come forward by families, and Zimri was chosen. Aren't these great names? If you run out of names for your kids, here's a great list. If you haven't ever thought about these before. Joshua had his family come forward now, man by man. And Achan, Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zemri, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah was chosen. Verse 19. Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, and honor him. Tell me what you have done. I mean, we just got beat up going to Ai. We just lost 36 men. There's sin in the camp. Tell me what in the world have you done? Do not hide it from me. Verse 20. Achan replied, it's true. I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what I have done. When I saw in the plunder, see, they they plundered Jericho. And they were supposed to take the things they had plundered and put them back into the temple treasury. But instead of putting it in the temple treasury... Achan took it himself, and most likely his whole family was involved in this because they're going to kill his whole family. And so most Bible teachers are convinced there's no way that he could have taken all these spoils just himself, but his whole family was involved. When I saw in the plunder a beautiful robe from Babylon, 200 shekels of silver, And a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them, and I took them. They are hidden in the ground inside my tent with the silver underneath. Joshua said, why have you brought this trouble on us? The Lord will bring trouble on you today. Then all Israel stoned him. This has got nothing to do with marijuana, just in case you're not clear about this. Nothing to do with pot. Okay, this is literally stoning him. Then all Israel stoned him, and after they stoned the rest, what? The rest? That's the family. And again, most Bible teachers believe, I I, I dug this up because I thought, that's not really fair. Why why would you kill the rest of the family? Well, they're they're convinced that the whole family was involved in this, and they burned them. Wow. My goodness. What a tragedy this is. You see, I, I don't think anybody's going to stone you, and I don't think anybody's probably going to burn you, and I, I, I don't know that you're going to cause the lives of 36 different men. But I do know this. In our culture today, this is a bigger blind spot than most of us realize because we're flowing in the stream of all this, and it's just kind of what everybody begins to accept. 
And, and this blind spot makes perfect sense, doesn't it? I mean, if you stop and you think about it, according to Nielsen reports, every day you and I receive 850 commercial messages. Billboards, internet, magazines, newspaper, um, TV, every day, 850, not commercials, but commercial messages. Now, speaking of commercials, every year, uh, our children, the average child, watches 50,000 commercials. And every day in the average American home, the TV is on for four and a half hours. Doesn't mean you're sitting in front of the TV, but in every American home, the average is the TV's on for over four and a half hours. Now, it it just makes sense that we may not see the dangers of of materialism, doesn't it? It's just a part of our culture. Um, There's a a lady, uh, Dr. Susan Heikert, in Denver. She's a psychologist, and she's done research just about materialism. That's her specialty. And Dr. Susan Heikert talks about how the more materialistic a person is, according to her research, they will become narcissistic, and they will basically not have friends. And they have less and less friends, less and less relationships, and they actually die very bitter and very angry kind of people. There's another researcher who just does couples, married couples, and 1,700 married couples have done this research, 3,400 people, and the 1,700 couples, if one spouse tends to be materialistic in marriage, there is less satisfaction between the couple. If both happen to be materialistic, the chances of a divorce are off the chart, and neither one of them will probably be happy in life. And so when you begin to look at this research that's out there, even people who aren't Christians are saying, you know what, if you're kind of self-centered and it's all about you, you're probably not, not going to be very happy. But I want to talk about this blind spot. How does this occur? How does this happen to you and to me to where we have an imbalance, an imbalance of a desire for material possessions to make us happy? How does the imbalance occur? Well, maybe you grew up in a low-income home. Maybe for you, um, you didn't have enough food. I've got a friend named Maurice, and Maurice grew up outside of Nashville. And Maurice couldn't wait to go to school to have school lunch because they didn't have any money for breakfast. And so he couldn't wait to go and, and, and have lunch because he got, he got lunch through, his, through, through school. Maybe you grew up in a very low-income family. And this became, has become a blind spot because as a little boy or a little girl or as a middle schooler or as a high schooler, you were determined, not me. I'm going to have money not me. I'm going to have things. Not me. I'm going to be happy. I'm going to get an education. I'm going to work hard. I'm going to do whatever it takes to have enough money in my life. And so maybe it's become a blind spot because you grew up very poor. Maybe you grew up in a middle-income family. And you would see other people around you who seem to be living the good life. You knew that you had enough to eat and you had enough to wear, clothes to wear and your life was fairly good, but you saw other people around you who were living in your eyes a better life. And so you vowed to yourself, I'm going to have that someday, no matter what it takes. Maybe you grew up in a very wealthy home. 
a very high-income family. And now, in the high-income family, maybe your parents, or it may have been your grandparents, or maybe your parents inherited a lot of money from somebody, and, and you grew up in a home, and you know you can't provide at that level. And so now you don't feel good about yourself. You've got a shame-based thing going on. And, and you're, you're thinking, you know what? I, I grew up in a high-income family, but I can't make the same amount of money that my dad did. I don't have the same kind of income that my grandparents infused into our lives. And you now have this imbalance, a craving. And you think that something shinier and faster and newer and thicker and whatever will make you happy. And you keep chasing that dream over and over and over again. What I'm talking about today is the imbalance. Now, I just want to push pause. We're on this trip together. We're in the car, and I just want to go over to the side of the road and clean the windshield for just a second, okay? Let me clean the windshield for just a second, because I'm a little strange about this, perhaps. You see, as, as a pastor, I've heard a lot of sermons on materialism, and most of them have been really awful, so now I want to just clean the windshield for just a second. I want to say something about that. There's nothing biblical about poverty. There's nothing biblical about being poor. Some of the most godly people in the whole Bible were the wealthiest people in the community. Some of the patriarchs had incredible farms and incredible... So, so there's nothing godly about being poor. There's nothing biblical about being lazy. Okay? So I just want to clean the windshield for just a second because what I'm trying to say to us today is we got to eat. We have to live. We live in a materialistic world. God created a material world, not a materialistic world. God created a material world. So we should work, and we should work hard. And if, you've, if you're not a Christian, even if you're not a Christian, but you follow all these different biblical principles that God has, you will always have money. And you will always have a job, even if you're not a Christian, but you follow the principles that God has laid out in the scriptures, you will always have resources. There are 2,351 verses that God in his Bible talks about how to earn money, how to make money, how to save money, how to give money. There, there's so many, even if you're not a Christian. Now, by being a Christian... You then get God involved in your finances and get God involved in your life and get God involved in your business. Wow! Even supernatural and greater things begin to take place. But I, I just want to say as we talk about this, see, I, I'm trying to communicate the imbalance. And so some of us have grown up and we think that somehow if we can just have enough toys just have enough stuff, just, ha just go enough place, we, we think that that will be the good life. And that's a blind spot. That's why the Bible warns us. First Timothy, look at this. These are some of the warnings from the scriptures. First Timothy 6.10 says, for the love of money, and, and this has been misquoted. I've heard this misquoted many times. I've heard people say that money is the root of all evil. It's not. How is money the root of all evil? It's the love of money. And some people eager for money have wandered from the faith, pierced themselves with many griefs. 
Look at the next passage of scripture I want to share with us out of Revelation chapter 3, verse 17. You say, I am rich, I've acquired wealth, and you don't need a thing, but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind. Circle the word blind in your mind. The craving for material possessions to meet your needs will make you blind. And then the last one I want to share is, is a great one out of Matthew. Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. Either he'll hate the one and love the other or be devoted to the one and despise it. You cannot serve both God and money. I know some really wealthy people who are so kind and so generous and so willing to share. And I know some really poor people who are greedy and stingy and wouldn't give you a loaf of bread if you were starving to death. You see, this comes back to, to our hearts. And so I, I, I want to give us a test right now. There's 13 different questions on this test. It's going to be on the screen. And I just want you to see, is this a blind spot for me? I thought maybe this was a blind spot for her. I thought it was a blind spot for them. But I want you to think about, is this a blind spot for me? All right? Now look to the person to your left. Look to the person to your right and say, you all got blind spots. You got a blind spot. I got a blind spot. We all got blind spots. In fact, tell the person beside you, I know you got more blind spots than I do. All right, here's the test. <laughs> here's the test. I, I think about money a lot, a little. I think about money most of the day. I don't think about money at all. This is for you. Nobody else needs to see this. This is not a multiple choice. This is, this is more philosophical. How, how much of the day do you think about money? Number two, I talk about money. I don't talk about money a lot. Every one of my conversations has something to do with fiscal something. I, I talk about money a lot, all right? Number three, I always ask first, well, how much does that cost? No laughter, no rib poking, uh, no confessing your sins in front of everybody else yet. How much does it cost? That's a blind spot. Question is, is this what God wants us to do? Right? This is a blind spot. Number three. Number four. I would be happier if. You know, I'd be happier if I got that new car. I'd, I'd be happier if we could just go on vacation. I'd be happier if I could buy the new purse. Not me personally. I don't have any... I would be happier if I could buy a new boat. I'll talk about me, all right? I'll talk about me. I would be happier if, and that's a blind spot. Number five, I value my family or I see my work as a conflict. This is interesting. The research that I did this past week, that a lot of people see their family as a conflict. I could work more. I could make more. If I didn't have this family, always want me to come home and have family dinners. If my, if my, family, if my family were out of the way, I could make a lot more money. Wow. Ouch. Ouch. That's a blind spot. Now, I'm going to say this. If you're 0 for 5, if you, if you don't have any blind spots so far, if you don't think you have any blind spots so far, you really can't see yourself. You, you, you really can't. I, I don't know how we can't be immersed in this materialistic culture. I, I got at least three of the first five, okay? I'm your preacher. 
and you're a guest this morning going, I knew we should have gone to Lutheran church. I knew, I knew, I knew we should have gone somewhere else. Number six, I work hard because I think you should work hard. I think the Bible talks about hard work. I think every man, every woman, every boy, every, I, think, I think your five-year-old kid ought to be taking out the silverware and the dishwasher. I think everybody has chores. Everybody ought to work hard. But I work hard because is it to meet a need in your life? Is it to make you feel valuable? I grew up poor and I vowed I was never going to be poor. Number seven, when a friend gets something new, I am happy for him. I feel a little sick for him. I got a little envy going on. I got a little jealous. When, when a person, when a friend of mine gets something new, can I rejoice with him or with her? Most people can't. Most people can't. Number eight, when a financial hardship happens to him or her, I feel secretly kind of glad or I'm sick at my stomach that somebody's going through something really challenging. Number nine, I think about what I don't have versus being grateful for what I do have. I'm telling you, if you struggle with this, if you're, if you're not really, you're always thinking about what you don't have, come with me to a week to Nicaragua. Come with me for a week. I mean, I come back from Nicaragua, and I am the richest man in the world. I can't believe I have what I have. I can't believe I get to do what I do. I come, it, it is a, it resets my, my mental computer. It'll change your life forever. So if you think, you know, you don't have much stuff, just, just come with me. Hang with me for a week. You'll see people who have one pair of shoes. These pastors have one pair of shoes. As a church, we, we've sent wedding dresses down there. The churches don't even have, the women don't even have wedding. We have, the whole church gets a wedding dress, and they keep making it bigger, or they keep making it smaller for the bride, you know, whatever she is. But they keep, what do you call it? Thank you. They keep doing that. They keep altering the dress to fit the person. I'm not a seamstress. All right, number, number 10. I like this. I like to give. I like to share. I, I like to be generous. I don't really like to give. I don't really like to be, to be generous. Number 11. If I get overpaid by an insurance company, if an insurance company overpays me two or $3,000 for a claim, I'm going to do what? If I get overpaid by my employer, I'm going to do what? I mean, think about this. What will you do? What do you do when those mistakes happen that are to your favor? How do you respond? Number 12. Um, I have thought about taking something from work. I have thought about stealing something that I know I can get away with. I have a friend of mine who had a bass fishing buddy in um, Knoxville, Maryville, Tennessee. And my friend asked me if I thought this other guy was a kleptomaniac. And I said, well, what do you mean? And he said, well, I've noticed that every time we go fishing, my tackle box gets thinner and thinner and thinner, and his tackle box gets fuller and fuller and fuller. I said, I don't know. I mean, I'm thinking, if you're going to be a kleptomaniac, steal boats or something. Don't steal tackle. It doesn't. But, but is, is this an issue for you? 
Would this be an issue that you would perhaps think about stealing? And then number 13 is just a joke. You, you definitely have a blind spot if you love the movie Italian Job. Okay. So how did you do? How did you do with those? All right. Well, um, let's talk about steps to freedom. Because I'm convinced we all have blind spots in this culture when it comes to materialism. And I want to give you some steps to freedom. These are all from the scriptures. And you need to take not one of these. You need to take all six of these. All six of these is what I'm asking you. I'm not asking you. This is what scripture is asking you to embrace. All right, here we go. Number one, put our trust in God. Lord, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. You own everything. It's yours. I'm going to put my trust in you. Number two, I'm going to use resources to do good. And 1 Timothy chapter 6, uh, verse 18a says, command them to do good. So Lord, I'm going to use my resources to do good. Number three, so I'm going to put my trust in God. I'm going to use my resources to, to do good. I'm going to be rich in good, de- good deeds, good works. And again, this all comes from 1 Timothy. And 1 Timothy says this, to be rich in good deeds. 1 Timothy 6, 18b. Number four, I, I'm going to break any, any thought of materialism in my life. I'm not sure if I'm materialistic or not. I'm not sure if it's a blind spot or not. But I'm going to learn to give generously. And I've really thought about this. I've thought about why, why does God want me to take communion? Does God need me to take communion? No, God doesn't need me to take communion, but I need to take communion. Why is God asking me to be a tither? Does God need my tithe? The answer is no, but I need to be a tither, so it breaks the bonds of greed in in my own life. And so when I am learning, I'm still learning, and Denise and I, she's way ahead of me on this, but when we're learning to give generously, it breaks the bonds of greed in your life and in my life. So we learn to give generously. And that's what 1 Timothy 6, 18 says as well. All right, number five, we want to be ready to share. We want to be ready to share. And so we work hard and we save money and we position ourselves to where if a family member has a need or if a friend's house burns down, we position ourselves where we are ready to share. We're not doing this this morning, but let's say that we had a need in Nicaragua. And let's say that in Nicaragua, we wanted to raise another five or $6,000 to buy the pastor's shoes. I'm just making this up. Are you in a position where you could kick in 50 or 60 or 100 bucks? See, I think the, the principles of Scripture are to be prepared so that we can be ready. We, we can be ready to share. And then the last one of these principles comes from uh, this whole passage. All it says, guard what has been entrusted to you. And you see, this is what God's done. God has entrusted with you a job, a certain amount of money, a certain amount of resources. He's put this in your trust. This is in your wheelhouse. And, and, and 1 Timothy tells guard. Guard what's been entrusted. Timothy, guard what's been entrusted to your care. And so this is what we do. We learn to be so responsible fiscally we learn that we walk differently than everybody else because we know this isn't our home. We're going to be here for just a short while. I want to read this about Howard Hughes. 
I just want to read this paragraph to you. I don't read to you very often, but can I read this to you? Can you give me just another minute or two? All right, all right. I want to read this to you. It says, all he ever wanted in life was more. He wanted more money, so he took his inheritance and he turned it into a billion-dollar pile of assets. He wanted more fame, and so he broke into Hollywood and soon became a filmmaker and a star. He wanted more sensual pleasure, so he paid handsome sums to indulge in every sexual urge. He wanted more thrills. And so he designed, built, and piloted the fastest aircraft in the world. He wanted more power. And so he secretly dealt political favors so skillfully that two U.S. presidents became his pawns. All he ever wanted was more. He was absolutely convinced that more would bring him true satisfaction. Unfortunately, history shows otherwise. He concluded his life emaciated, colorless, sunken chest, fingernails in grotesque inches, inches long corkscrews, rotting black teeth, tumors, innumerable needle marks from his drug addiction. Howard Hughes died believing the myth of more. He died a billionaire junkie, insane by all reasonable standards. Isn't it a shame that some people have more than enough to live on but they have nothing to live for? You see, that's not us. We have something to live for. We're a part of a mission. We're a part of a ministry. We're we're making a difference in the kingdom of God. What a tragedy to have more than enough to live on, but nothing to live for? Well, that's not us. Jesus Christ came into this world And he died on a cruel Roman cross so that you and I could be free and be forgiven. And then we're we're a part of a mission and we make a difference. So we're sowing seeds to children and we're sowing seeds to middle schoolers and we're sowing seeds to high schoolers. We're going out to our families and to our neighborhoods and to our workforces. And in those environments, we're inviting people to come to church. We're inviting people to come and see what this is all about. And God's using you. You've probably got more than enough to live on. And you've got so much to live for. It's the kingdom. It's the kingdom of God. And we get to be a part of that. You know, the real tragedy, though, is, is the spiritual blindness that people have. And I, I've got this definition of spiritual blindness, and I kind of want to wrap up and close with this. I, and maybe this is some of you this morning. Maybe some of you this morning, you've, you've grown up, and it's about more and more and more, and you just haven't gotten around to figuring out who Jesus is. You're not really sure what the Bible's all about, and you just kind of haven't gotten around to it. Well, there's a spiritual blindness, and I think it's tragic. Our refusal to acknowledge God as Lord and Creator, while at the same time choosing foolishly to trust in ourselves. That is the height of spiritual blindness. Would would you trust in yourself for eternal life? Would you trust in yourself that you have the best plan for your life? See, that's why most of you are in the room today. You're here. Because you've gotten spiritual insight. You not only have plenty to live on, 
you have a whole, whole, whole lot to live for. And that's what we do as family. That's what we do as church. Well, as we wrap this up this morning, I first of all want to encourage those of you that have never given your life to Jesus Christ. Yeah, Kurt, to be honest with you, I trust myself. If it is to be, it is up to me. That's been your motto for life. And you've gone through life and you've tried to work out everything your way, your will. And so far, you've not really surrendered. And so what God is asking you to do to start this whole process is a basic surrender. I am not going to put my trust in me. I'm going to put my trust in thee. And so today, Father, I accept your son, Jesus, as my Savior and as my Lord. And I will put all my faith and all my hope and all my confidence in you. And so I'm going to ask you if you would do that. Let's stand right now. I'm going to have our prayer partners come down front. So first of all, if you've never given your life to Jesus and you have trusted in yourself, I'm asking you today to trust in Christ. Second of all this morning, maybe you'd like to come down and have special prayer because maybe this has rattled your cage just a little bit and you're still maybe just a little off balance or the camera's just a little bit out of focus and you're going, I'm not sure that I am blind when it comes to some of this, but I I would like for somebody to pray with me and to pray for me and to pray over me. And so maybe today you would really like to come down and say, you know what, to one of these great elders and leaders and people, you know what, I'm not sure if I'm blind, but I need some clarity. I can't see it. I can't see clearly. Or maybe in this room, you know, you know that this has been a real challenge for you. It it, it came out of the closet this morning, so to speak, and your heart's in a vice. And you're asking maybe somebody just to pray over you. Man, I struggle with this. Gosh, I struggle with this. I struggle with this. You know, Kurt was right. I, I grew up in a poor home, and I make plenty of money now, but I, I grew up poor, and, I've, and I, I, it's a struggle. Or, yeah, I grew up in a really wealthy home, and I, I just can't meet. And I, I just, man, I'm struggling. Whatever your needs are, whatever your struggle is, I, I don't want you to leave this room not being set free and as you leave today I want us to realize how great and how grateful we can be and and, and probably should be probably should be a lot more grateful and as we leave today I, I want us to realize I want you to talk about this all week long I not only as a Christian have a lot to live on whew, I got a lot to live for I got a lot to live for I have so much to live for. And so this week, I'm going to be praying for them and praying for them and praying for them. And and this week, I'm going to be thinking about how I can dial into this and get more involved with this. I'm going to be thinking all week long, Lord, use me. Lord, use me. Have your way. Have your way with me. Have your way in me. I'm going to ask you, God, to just transform and change my life forever and forever. Three different good opportunities to, for prayer. Maybe it's to become a Christian. Maybe you're a little confused about this this morning. Or you know that you know that you know that you struggle with this. And you're asking for help. To the
the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only true God, be glory and honor forever and forever. Amen.